This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Today I'm talking with Harrison Chang, Senior Analyst for Thailand and Malaysia, about Singapore's neighbor, Malaysia, the supply chains that Malaysia has an outsized role in, everything from electronics to heat commodities like palm oil, and the fragmented and highly fragile political situation that exists there in in government that has persisted for the last couple of years since the removal of Prime Minister Najib Razak and how the pandemic has played out in Malaysia. So, Harrison, we're going to talk Malaysia today. It's a complicated situation, highly fragmented and fragile politics, I guess is the way to put it. Maybe give the listeners a simplified snapshot of the current state of play in Malaysia from a political perspective. Sure. Thanks, Dane. So this political crisis is is really about the Prime Minister, Muhyiddin Yassin, and his fragile hold over his own ruling coalition. So Prime Minister Muhyiddin came to power in early 2020 over a coup from the previous government. He was a primary instigator of that coup. And since then, he has presided over a ruling coalition that includes AMNO, the United Malays National Organization. AMNO is not very happy with Mohidin because AMNO feels that it's been shortchanged in terms of cabinet positions as well as other privileges that it once had when it was ruling Malaysia for decades since the 1950s and 60s. So AMNO, parts of AMNO have been trying to break away from Mohidin. And the thing about Mohidin's coalition is that Mohidin has a very slim parliamentary majority which means that a small number of defections from AMNO from the ruling coalition will essentially cause him to lose his majority and therefore he will either have to resign or call for snap elections. So right now, because AMNO is divided uh, between people who want to work with Muhyiddin and people who do not want to work with him, there's a chance that this government could essentially collapse uh, in the midst of uh, a severe pandemic outbreak Um, and snap elections could actually take place by the end of the year. So that's the political situation right now. Right. So just to be clear, when you say coup, you, you mean a, a political kind of party coup, but not the military variety. And UMNO is kind of fractured, as you say, kind of the longtime ruling party is kind of fractured and split into various factions, some official, some unofficial. And this has really impacted their handling of the pandemic, right? I mean, you have a pretty poor response overall going back more than a year when really the economy has kind of been frozen in many respects because of movement control orders and other things. So what does that prognosis look like? Because Malaysia is an important player, I think people sometimes forget, in, in, in world supply chains, particularly around things like surgical gloves and things like that. So what is that from a pandemic perspective? Where are they kind of going? Where are they now? Where are they going? So a quick snapshot of where we're at right now. Malaysia is currently in the, in the midst of a third wave of pandemic, average of about 12,000 new cases daily. So by regional standards, it's not doing as badly as perhaps Indonesia, which is getting quite a number of headlines right now. But it's certainly far from ideal. Uh, ICU utilization is 90% and above in hotspots in, in Malaysia. 
And as you mentioned, uh, you know, there are many different iterations of the MCO lockdown since last year. I think although, yes, these are dark times for Malaysia, the key to the puzzle that they need to get is really vaccination. And it's really key to, to stopping the pandemic as well as allowing the government more freedom to decide how to respond to the pandemic without always resorting to nationwide lockdowns. And, and the status update is that the government has inoculated about a third of the population. And actually, this might have been missed in various prognoses of Malaysia out there in the media that, you know, the government has actually done quite well in ramping up the number of doses administered per day uh, from a low of, you know, less than 100,000 back in May and June to about 400,000 doses per day. And now they are trying to reach 500,000 doses uh, per day in the coming weeks. And the other good thing is that with this timeline in mind, about 100% of adults in Malaysia will be vaccinated by the end of this year. The government's estimate is by October, but we think that that's a bit optimistic given that there is vaccine hesitancy in Malaysia, uh, which could be a potential derailer. Another good point to raise is that Malaysia is actually relying mostly on Pfizer which is known to be more effective against the Delta variant, which is obviously surging across Southeast Asia right now and causing a lot of repeated outbreaks. I think this is important to note because whereas in other countries like Indonesia and Thailand, which are relying mainly on Sinovac and, and other Chinese vaccines, the efficacy of which against the Delta variant is quite uncertain. I would say it's a good bet that Malaysia is relying about you know 60 to 70% of their vaccine supply mix on Pfizer. And they are also sourcing from other Western manufacturers as well. So I think all these point to you know a certain improvement in the situation by the end of this year if not in the coming weeks right so that's actually impressive when you say even though they're okay it's a goal they're heading toward but 500,000 a day at a population of a bit over 30 million that's actually quite impressive so that's i guess that bodes well so let's talk a little bit about the supply chain issue since malaysia kind of has an outsized role in certain supply chains and and how the mco and kind of the various versions of MCO lockdown, international travel, of course, being not possible. You know, how has Malaysia fared from a supply chain perspective over the last kind of year plus? So I think if you look at how Malaysia has dealt with the different MCOs over the past few months, it's quite clear that they are very keen to protect their manufacturing sector. They have pushed back against political pressure both within the coalition and from the opposition, as well as from various industry associations. They've pushed back against pressure to actually shut down the manufacturing sector completely. What they've done is take quite a nuanced approach, you know, applying targeted restrictions, applying capacity limits at, at factories and so on and so forth, but not really taking kind of like the, the nuclear option. And they, I mean, they obviously understand that Malaysia's economic growth is going to be very much dependent on sustaining its role as a vital node in the supply chains uh, globally for things like semiconductors, automotive components, PPEs, gloves, as you mentioned earlier. But it is true that there are slow progress in the vaccination in the early stages of the pandemic, especially early this year, compared to places like Singapore, did create a lot of issues for manufacturers. In many parts of the manufacturing industry, uh, production has been severely depressed. I think you would not have missed the news that two major Japanese automakers also had to suspend operations in June simply because you know it was not feasible to continue with like 10% workforce capacity at the, at the factories. And so that has had a massive impact on the supply chains. The other aspect of the supply chain disruption is actually somewhat within the government's control. It's not so much the severity of the outbreak, but actually the communications of the restrictions that have come. 
The MCO has been criticized for being uh, sometimes contradictory, uncoordinated across different ministries. And to give you a sense of how uncoordinated, there are about 11 ministries that deal with permits to operate under the MCO. And these ministries don't necessarily to talk to each other. Sometimes they are led by politicians from warring factions within the ruling coalition, and that complicates matters. And there have been limited avenues for businesses to actually reach out to the government and be consulted on some of these changes beforehand. A large part because this government is quite opaque in its decision making. Mohidin, in his bid to sort of continue to hold on to power, has sought to evade scrutiny, including from parliament, which is why parliament has been suspended for so many months and is only resuming in late July. So that means that a lot of these regulations that are being drafted by policymakers are not really sensitized to business needs. Uh, and that has really, really affected uh, you know, companies' uh, supply chains. Good. So you kind of answered my question. I, I was going to go back to the political scene and kind of ask you, you know, okay, political infighting, but that happens in a lot of places. What's the so what for business? But I, I mean, you've, you've kind of gotten to that point of when you have kind of a hodgepodge government with ministers from competing factions or competing parties called coalition, it is really messy, right? And I guess the, the, the takeaway is if the government falls and there's a snap election, then all those people are likely to turn over and you kind of you almost start from scratch again, right? In a, in a, as you say, in a situation where decision-making is not particularly transparent. Let's talk a little bit about another piece of the supply chain story, which is not related to the pandemic. But as we know, a lot of industries in Malaysia, particularly those around plantations and things, rely on imported labor from South Asia, from Indonesia, etc. And Malaysia's taken a couple of hits from their buyers overseas in the last kind of 12 months over the human rights aspects of some of the supply chains. And this, as we know, is, a, is an increasing focus for North American companies and companies in the EU. Germany just recently passed a law about human rights, due diligence, and for the supply chain. So lay the groundwork for us there. What has happened and, and, and what is being done to address it? So as you pointed out, allegations of forced labour, child labour, alleged violations of the International Labour Organization's 11 indicators of forced labour have been raised in various sectors, the vast palm oil sector, as you mentioned, but also PPEs, rubber gloves, electronic sector that has also witnessed quite a number of exposés and investigations over the past few years by media outlets. And the scrutiny is coming, like you said, from places like the, obviously the US with the Customs and Border Protection being increasingly active. The UK, the EU, Australia, New Zealand, these are, these are all countries that have raised issues with the sourcing of products that are allegedly produced from under forced labour conditions in just a matter of the past few months. And actually, the pandemic has actually worsened these conditions. The living conditions for workers are not great in Malaysia, especially for the migrant workers. The practices of wage suppression, withholding of passports, these have all persisted under the pandemic. Of course, the companies that have been targeted by or rather singled out by media outlets and the US Customs and Border Protection, they have vowed to take action to first investigate the issues in their own supply chains and then secondarily to identify uh, ways to mitigate these conditions and these risks. We do not really see a significant political will from the Malaysian government to put pressure on these local companies, partly because these companies are massive, right? They are huge revenue earners for the Malaysian economy. And these practices are very entrenched. And as I mentioned, and this goes back to the whole fractious politics, the, the politicians are just way too distracted with their own battles for survival, that they are not that invested in putting pressure on, on these companies. So that actually leads to a bit of stasis, a bit of stagnation. Uh, of course, the additional scrutiny on these sectors and on the 
and other alleged labor violations has increased regulatory risks for the companies and our clients you know to consider doing uh, more comprehensive and more transparent labor audits within their supply chains in Malaysia right of course that is very much that's very much informed like you said by the increased uh, regulatory awareness of the need to adhere to higher standards ethical standards when you source your labor not just in western countries but i think more generally within the region you know there is a greater awareness among regulators for things like uh, ESG so so all this has really driven that kind of focus and the need of clients to actually look closer at what they are doing within Malaysia and how best to address these allegations before there is that obvious overt intervention by by agencies like the CBP the consequent reputational damage yeah this is of course not just true in Malaysia but in a lot of countries that that social risk audit if you will becomes all important for the supply chain you know for the end users or end buyers. I want to go back to, to the pop political situation in a minute. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I know it's it's a very, very difficult uh, environment to make <laughs> make predictions. But you've had a, a prime minister who's kind of survived. Well, A, I think it was people are kind of surprised that he's there, but then he's survived longer than anybody kind of really thought. So if I asked you to, to predict, you know, how long is he going to be there? Of course, possibly tied to, he wasn't elected after all possibly tied to, you know, as you mentioned, you touched upon earlier, a snap election. What does your best guess say? Well, it's a tough one, but I would say that Mohidin still has quite a bit of life in him, despite the, the, the chaos. And I would say there is a, you know, if I were to put a percentage to it, you know, there is a 60% chance that he could hang on until the end of the year. And the reason I say that is because the vaccination is key. Once he's able to turn around the COVID situation, ensure that a majority is vaccinated, the public mood will change, the political pressure will lessen both within the coalition and outside of it. The opposition does not have a very credible alternative to present. They are still going for Anwar Ibrahim, but he's very much untested in the, re- in the area of governance. I think when you look back at how Najib fell in 2018, it took a lot, it took a lot, years and years and years of pressure from the opposition, uh, years and years of resentment from the public to actually topple Najib. It took a general election to do it. Now, if we actually don't go to a snap election, I think there's a good chance that Mohidin will hang on until the end of the year. So that's a brave prognosis, but I would say there's 60% chance he's gonna hang on, especially if we don't go to a snap election. The problem is if we do get to a snap election, it's much harder to predict the outcome, but I would say there are two sides to it. One is that it's difficult to predict what might happen, but on the other hand, there's an increasing likelihood that whatever ruling coalition comes out of that election, it's going to be a very fragmented one. You're not going to have a return to AMNO era rule where it's a kind of like a essentially a one one party coalition with a comfortable majority. And what that means is that I think in the in the years to come, we are going to see coalition governments having to negotiate very aggressively with opposition parties to try and get their support for simple bills to be passed not even the budget you know just simple bills to be passed Uh, and i think that in terms of legislative progress you know regulatory reforms i think the landscape is just going to be even more complicated than than it was a few years ago right so even if you have an election you're still going to have regardless of who's kind of there and driving seats so to speak you're still going to have fairly weak coalitions and that means difficult governance situations 
Before we let you go, I just want to ask about one individual since we talked about, we've been talking about UMNO and, and vaccination. You said vaccination, you know, kind of is key to a reputation of the government. So Kari Jamaluddin, who's kind of been an UMNO rising star for a long time, everybody points to him, I think, or, you know, he's one of the people that people point to to say, okay, this is, you know, the, the future if UMNO wants to have a future. So he's in, been in charge of the vaccination program as kind of health minister. Is this helping him or is it a poison chalice? I would say with the way the expected trajectory of vaccinations going up and that timeline of end 2021 near 100%, I think it's going to help Kyrie more than it's going to hurt him. Obviously, he has had to take a lot of flack over the past few months. But the truth is that the government did say that vaccinations would start ramping up from June and it did happen. So in a way, he was vindicated. Of course, the vaccination rate is not never going to be as quick as some critics would want it to be especially if you compare it to other countries around the world. But I would say Kyrie is not in a bad spot. He's still with, you know, what they call the cabinet cluster in Amno, who's still hanging on and working with Mohidin. You know, he and Hishamuddin Hussein, Najib's cousin, uh, who is also a cabinet minister right now. You know, Hisham is being seen as someone who might possibly take over as, uh, as, as Amno leader in the future. So, you know, tagging on a Hisham Kyrie kind of tech team, you know, could possibly be that, that future that we're looking at. An AMNO-led ruling coalition, whether with snap election or not, Kyrie could get closer to that prime ministership that he's been talking about since father-in-law Abdullah Badawi was in power. So I think the prospects for Kyrie are not too bad right now. So let's end on that note. Thank you very much, Harrison, for making this very complicated somewhat murky situation clearer for our listeners today and uh, i'm sure we'll have you back in the not distant future to talk about the next the next version of all of this thanks dane happy to be here if you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of in focus make sure to subscribe wherever you listen and be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well such as the global insight our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.